This morning, the title of the sermon will probably be going on for the next uh, several upcoming weeks with the thought of walking worthy. Starting in verse number 1 of Ephesians chapter 4, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you as always for the opportunity to open your word and to study it. Lord, I pray that you'll be with us this morning as we are challenged by the words your spirit moved upon Paul to pin down and challenge us even this morning, all these years later. We give thanks to you, Lord. We magnify your name. Be with those who are teaching the young kids next door, Lord. If there be anyone in this building today or in any of the sister churches, Lord, where uh, who are lost and on their way to hell, we pray that today, this day, Lord, your, your name will be magnified and all men will be drawn unto you. We give thanks for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Leading up to Ephesians chapter 4, in the first chapter, in the second chapter, in the third chapter, Paul has continue to remind the believers of not only the blessings that we have in Christ. Matter of fact, he closes out chapter 3 talking about this great rich uh, riches that we have in Christ. Even more, he sets out to tell about the blessings and the beliefs, but in chapter 4, they consider chapter 4 the transition chapter of this epistle to the Ephesians. In chapter 4, in the verse, verse number 1, we see that there is this great change. Of course, we leave theology, which we've seen in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and we now begin to focus in on practicality. We leave the beliefs, so to say, and we leave the beliefs of the Christian and turn to the behavior of the Christian. We leave the thought process of creed and turn to conduct. We stop looking at this great wealth that we have in Christ and turn now to the walk of the believer. We leave exposition and now turn to exhortation. He exhorts each and every one of us that we would walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. He starts all of this off here in verse number one, I therefore. This therefore is what we're connecting to the previous passages. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. It is to say because of all that you have, 
and because all the riches that you have in Christ, because what God has done to bring about your salvation, because of all of that, he beseeches us to walk worthy of this vocation that we are called. It is to say that because when a believer fully understands what God has done, it makes us walk differently. What Paul is trying to say is that when a believer gets a hold of what God has done in the spiritual, it will grip you in the physical. It is one thing to say that we believe in hell. It's another thing to live like we have the answer to prevent other people's from going to hell. It's two different things altogether. Yesterday, my uh, sons, Caleb and Seth, were uh, caught up doing a landscaping job. Well, this job that they were doing was, this house was fortressed in by these bushes. These bushes were some like 14 feet tall, and if that wasn't bad, they were about 12 feet deep. Well, yesterday I get the call from my son Caleb and I could hear his troubled voice. Dad, I know you're studying, but you just have to come see this. When I get there, I see that he has a problem. But what I realized was not that he had a problem with dealing with the bushes, so to say. He, he had an internal problem. The internal problem was, sorry to put you on the spot there, son, but the internal problem was when he got 12 feet up in the air on top of this ladder and was waving this big hedge trimmer, it clicked to him that he is afraid of heights. His internal belief that he was in danger gripped him physically. He could not get up on top of the ladder and wave the head trimmer freely without holding to the ladder. He sounded like Pinocchio up there clacking all together. Paul is saying that when we grasp a hold of the truths of chapter 1 through 3, that it will be manifested in the same physical manner that my son had yesterday trembling with fear on top of the ladder. He believed that he was in danger. Therefore, his physical manifestation was that he believed that he was in danger. When we believe that we are experiencing and that we have experienced the greatest blessing that this world could ever experience, and that is to be born again, when we really begin to grasp a hold of this great truth that we have all the riches this world could ever imagine in Christ, it, it changes us. It changes us as the whole. Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith Ye are called. This morning, as I was reading verse number one, refreshing my mind, I was gripped by this saying, I there for the prisoner of the Lord. I there for the prisoner of the Lord. He, hear me now. Paul is in 
prison. Yet his exhortation is that we walk worthy of the vocation in which we are called. This is a disruption to modern day religion. Many people today say, in order for me to worship correctly in the house of God, things have to be my way. In order for me to worship, it needs to be the way that I desire it. Yet what Paul says here, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord am worshiping the Lord, and you should too. You hear me? What it means is that if we take Paul's thought process, if we take Paul's exhortation and we applied it to our own lives, what it would mean that is that if we were in the hospital battling an ailment, battling an illness, we would say, I therefore the patient of the Lord. You see, because Paul is in prison because of Nero, yet he does not acknowledge his imprisonment is because of Nero. He acknowledges that God is sovereignly in control. The I am a prisoner of the Lord because the Lord sought fit to have me in prison. How this would change our mindsets in the hospital. I therefore the patient of the Lord or even more. When we're mistreated by others, when people speak to us poorly, we say, woe unto you because I am an employee of the Lord. When someone hurts us, and by the way, if you are in ministry any time at all, serving the Lord any time at all, you will be wounded in ministry. You will be hurt in ministry for sure. But what Paul says here is that when we're wounded in ministry, we say, well, I'm wounded of the Lord. Everything that we experience in this life has never disconnected us from who we are in the Lord. These first 16 verses, really the first, yeah, the first 16 verses, Paul sets out to, to encourage the church to exhort the church about what it means to be unified. First, he says in the first 16 verses that we should be unified in our walk. And in the 17th verse, he turns back and says that we should be unified in the purity of our walk. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. He acknowledges that God is sovereignly in control, yet he also acknowledges that the salvation that we've experienced and all that we experienced in chapters 1 through 3 has caused a forward progress in us. He said, I, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk. This is forward progress. And this means that the old man may have been satisfied with an idle life. This means that the old man may have been satisfied with doing nothing. But when we grasp a hold of what God has done in us, it causes us to have a forward progress. You have may have been satisfied in the old life with having no direction, but when the Lord moves, you get to walk in. He said, I beseech ye that ye 
walk. You know what he said is something that I, I believe is so fit. Really, I believe it is so applicable to our Christian lives today, yet it seems strange to us. You see, if you was to go home today and turn on the TV and start to watch basketball, I think the, uh, the NBA whatever finals or whatever says talking about going on. If you was to turn on the TV and you watched basketball and you watched LeBron James running down the court, kicking the ball, and as he arrived to the hoop, he tries to kick the basketball into the hoop, you would say something is really wrong. If you turned on soccer and you watched, what's that guy, Lionel Messi, and he's running down the court, instead of kicking the soccer ball, there's Messi dribbling the soccer ball down the field. And when he gets to the soccer net, instead of kicking it, he shoots it in the net. We would say, something is really wrong here. Yet Paul also applies the same thing to the believer. He says, there is something immensely strange to a person who professes to, to know and to believe all of the truths of chapters 1 through through three and not be walking for the Lord. We ought to be walking. To, to, to not walk for the Lord is no different than messy dribbling, and it's no different than LeBron James kicking the ball down to the court. It does not match the event that you're in. He said that you walk worthy of the vocation in which, the, the worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Notice what he says here. He doesn't say that you should be moving forward, but he also says that you should be moving forward in a worthy manner. Why does he even add this? Walk worthy. You know, I can only imagine as Paul had been scanning through and preaching through all of these Galatia and Cappadocia and Corinth and all of these things. He recognized that there are believers, believers who are saved and are in fellowship with the Lord who are moving forward, but not in a worthy manner. Meaning when he looked to the people in Corinth as we're going through the uh, the epistle to the Corinthians in our Sunday school hour. As he's talking to the Corinthians, he is rebuking them because they're saved. They're walking for the Lord, yet there's some strange things going on. They're getting drunk at the, um, they're getting drunk at the, uh, well, they're getting drunk here. But um, they're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. We're going to get there now. But they got, it was getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Even more than that. They were living a carnal Christianity. He said, you guys are saved, but your walk is concerning. When it came to the Galatians, he didn't take back the fact that they were the church of Galatia. He just said that you guys are not walking worthy of the great salvation that you have. You're being bewitched. You're being pulled away. You're, you're not uh, like the Bereans searching the scriptures upon everything you hear. Paul's challenge to us in this exhortation is not only that we make a forward progress for the Lord, but that we walk in a worthy manner and that in the end of all, God would be 
glorified. So he said, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we, ye are called. Paul said, I, I want to move forward, but I want to move forward in a worthy manner. To try to bring this into a, a better light of understanding, the word worthy here, it comes from the Greek word uh, axios. Its root idea brings around this thought process of weight. And we get the word axiom in our English word from this exact Greek word, axios. So it is to say, when we use the word axiom today, it is to say that it is of equal weight. When you do an equation, the axiom indicates that you're doing something to either side of the equation, and yet it still remains true. So what Paul is saying here is that the axiom, the axios, the weight of this whole matter, on one side of the equation, he says, chapters 1 through 3, we have the beliefs. But in order for the axiom to remain true, we must do something to the other side of the equation to, to prove that it is true. So the one side of the equation is the chapters 1 through 3 in the belief, and the other side of the axiom is chapters 4 through 6, that if 1 through 3 is real, then 4 through 6 would be real, and we would walk worthy. That is the balance to the equation, that we have these beliefs, and we behave like we believe these beliefs, and in the end of all, when the equation is balanced out, it brings about one thing, that we have a wonderful, merciful God who saved a wretched sinner, and we live like it, because we believe that's exactly what he did. That is the balance to the weight. This is the balance to it all, that he is working. But Paul doesn't want to end here. He wants to focus in on what it means to be unified in the church. He wants to focus on unity in the church. It is one of the most important things. When you get into the book of Acts, they were steadfast in one accord. Unity is important uh, for worship. Unity is important for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So Paul opens up the school curriculum and begins to teach us what it means to be unified. He, he, remember, this is about conduct. This is about behavior. So he, he sets to put before us the conduct and behavior of each and every believer in order to have a church that's unified. Look at verses 2 through 3. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, for bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You notice what he says there in verse number 2. With all lowliness. Lowliness means that we should walk in humility. It means that we should be humble. Someone has described humility as into insight into one's own insignificance. 
Yet it does not mean that our life is insignificant. It doesn't mean that at all. Paul encourages them to live the lives that they have now, showing the world the unfathomable, the unsearchable significance that we now have in Christ. But yet it means that we live each day humbling ourselves to lift up Christ. Now, we, we understand that this is just against human nature. Human nature is rooted in each and every one of us. We love the thought process of being exalted. We love the thought process of being lifted up. Yet the truth remains that the one who seeks to be exalted cannot live a life of service to someone else. One of the greatest hotel chains in America, they say, is the Ritz-Carlton. Their theme is service. That's all they care about. They say from the moment you pull your car up in front of the building until the very moment you leave, they set out on an endeavor to make you feel like you could go to any other hotel in the world and wouldn't even receive even comparable service to what you get there. We also recognize what? That service is important, is it not? If you go to a restaurant that's supposed to be a good restaurant and you get bad service, most of the time we ain't going back because it doesn't matter how good your restaurant name is, bad service can turn us off to even good things. Even more, we further understand that in the house of God or when it comes to us being believers, we can say all we want, that we serve a great God, a wonderful God, a God who saves from the guttermost to the uttermost, yet if we put ourselves on display in front of the world, in front of each other, in a, in a, in a lifestyle in which we seek to be exalted, exalted, it is a turn off to the world. Matter of fact, if we're honest, it is the same to each and every one of us here. It's hard to stomach someone who all they do is brag about their self. But here Paul says that with all lowliness, Step number one and to be a church that's unified is that we humble ourselves and stop thinking about ourselves and think about others. Don't worry. If you're looking for a good example of this, Scripture has given us one loud and clear. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator, the, the second uh, Godhead in the Trinity. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Listen, he didn't come here to receive applause of men. Even more, God came here, Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 says, For the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. <laughs> if that's what God is willing to do, 
If that's what God is willing to do, to leave his throne in heaven and come down here and minister unto people like us, what more can we say of ourselves of why we should not have the same heart of service as our Lord? Yet even more, we understand that nothing unifies a church more than when everyone is trying to help each other. Paul says in verse number two, with all lowliness and meekness. Rarely these two are hand in hand. Lowliness is to be humble and meekness is to be gentle. Oftentimes the world kind of looks down upon meek people. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. Meek does not mean that you're powerless. Uh, let me put it to you in this aspect about how these two are hand in hand. To be humble and to be gentle, to be um, meek. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I have. But back when I worked at a, a former uh, place of employment, there was a guy in the maintenance group who really did nothing but try to find himself at the site of everybody else's place where they were working for the day. So if this machine broke down and you went to it, he would just stop over there for two minutes. Then he would go to the next machine that's broke down and stop there for two minutes and then go back to the boss and say, hey, I helped them and I talked to them and I gave them advice. And I gave. he really sought to exalt himself in front of everybody, even more the management. Well, one day he did something that was a little off. Well, one of the other maintenance guys said to the manager in front of him that this man had made a mistake, and this guy went irate because his image was being affected. You see, people who are humble are also meek, but people who seek to be exalted will turn out and lash out in anger when their image is being affected. But Paul says here, uh, these two are hand in hand. The one who made the worlds, the one who put the stars in space, the one who calls them by name, the one who holds the water in the hollow of his hands, the the one who created all of this world out of nothing. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, when he was speaking to his disciples, he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For what? I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. There's too many believers. Paul is bringing us back to too many believers are moving through the Christian life saying, I got this. They're trying to, so to say, muscle through. Um, but the Bible says here that there is something for us to learn to live a humble, meek life of reliance upon the Lord. We don't have to take matters in our own hands. This morning, Brother Brandon referenced uh, in Numbers chapter 22 about Moses when he smote the rock. But when you read about this chapter in a whole, it's kind of enlightening. You know, the Bible says that Moses was a meek man. 
But as Moses in Numbers 22 was trying to get the congregation to come with him to this rock in which they would get water, he would, he would condemn them in his speech. Read it. He would say, come hither, you rebellious generation, you rebellious congregation. Yet Moses had become so upset with the rebellion of other believers, God told Moses to speak to the rock. Instead of speaking to the rock, Moses lost his meekness and smote the rock. And there that costed Moses his opportunity to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. Paul says, if, you, if your church is going to be unified, if, if you're going to be unified together, the signs of a strong church is that we are humble, we exalt Christ, we live a life of service, and that we are meek people. We understand that how easy it is at times to find ourselves agitated. Oftentimes when we gather here, nobody knows what your morning was like. Nobody knows what your night, what happened the night before or the bad news you just got about your cousin or grandmother or mother. Nobody knows about those things. Yet when we get here, if somebody says the wrong thing, at times we can lash out or take things to heart or find ourselves upset and lose our meekness. And in the midst of losing our meekness, we've wrecked the unity and brought shame to the Lord. Just like Moses, even more, he, he said that the Lord had this resume of none other, yet his life focus was that in everything God would be glorified. Even more, the challenge of our new walk goes on. He says we ought to learn to be long-suffering with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, Forbearing one another in love. Well, it seems at first that uh, this is a pretty simple task to be long suffering. If I tell you to be long suffering, it's not a big deal. Like, of course, you know, I'll be long suffering. I'm, I'm a patient person. But Paul complicates this statement. He says, long suffering, forbearing one another. Well, that seems to be where we fall short. We at times fail to be long-suffering. We at times fail to recognize uh, when we come to church, it is the reminder to all of us that we are unified in Christ. We are united in Christ, but we are not uniformed. Matter of fact, the encouragement, the exhortation that Paul gives us here that we should be long-suffering, forbearing one another, only further draws to the light that we are not all alike, and he recognizes it. Yet the encouragement is, is that though each and every one of us are different, that our personalities may at times collide, but that we have to be long-suffering one with one another, forbearing one another for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ. You know, I am a morning person. 
from the very moment I open my eyes, I can burst into laughter, burst into singing. I'm just, that's how I am. The exact opposite is my wife. We have different personalities. If I get to singing in the morning and get to being loud in the morning and having a good old time, that's the only person who's going to be having a good old time is myself. It means no breakfast. It means no coffee. It means no nothing. But you know what? In the evening, when the sun goes down, I want to go to bed. And she wants to laugh. And she wants to cackle. And she wants to knit. And I ain't having it. But our personalities are different. Yet, we love each other, and we (laughs) suffer through each other's differences. And pray that she quits knitting or whatever, crocheting. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Tick, 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 tick. Needles, that's all you hear. But we're different. Yet, I love her with all my heart, and yet she loves me with all her heart. And, and... We're different people. Even here, we're different. We all don't like the same things. We all don't like the same jobs, but we all love the same God. And when we arrive here, that is supposed to be the first and foremost things on our mind, that everything I do here is to promote the unity and to promote the love of Christ. So when the world comes in here, they say, I've never seen such a united group of people. Look at all the different kind of people here, age groups, ethnic groups, all of these different things, yet they seem to love each other equally. It's supposed to cause the world to question. You see, when we get caught up in the bantering, in the division that the world tries to another, meaning forbearing one another in love. It is to say that forbearing one another is to take under, like if I wrong you, forbearing one another in love is meaning that I forgive those who injure me. I forgive those who may have hurt me because I recognize hanging on to those things will do me no good. Now, there are some things that we need to address. The Bible gives us uh, the steps in Matthew about how to handle those situations when we have problems. But if we don't use the blueprint for handling problems, you can't make it everybody else's problem that you're refusing to handle the problem that you have. Now, nobody likes it. Nobody enjoys it, but it doesn't, the reason it's laid out for us there is for the sake of the unity of the church. Even more, it says to sympathize one another. It says to assist one another. It means to be gentle with one another. And verse 3 here in closing summarizes it. Why? Because we are endeavoring to keep the unity of, of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is why. This is why we behave in this way. This is why we act in this way. This is why we love in the way we do. This is why we pray in the way we do because in the end of all, 
If we want to have fellowship, not only one with another, but with the Lord, we have to be unified in the spirit of peace. Uh, Spurgeon once said that doves will never land where there is much tension. And so it is when we've seen in the New Testament that the spirit fell down upon them like a dove. Where there is much tension, there will be no unity at all. Where there is much strife, there will be no unity at all. Where there is no love, there will be no unity. Where there's no sympathy, there will be no unity. Where there's no heart of service, there will be no unity. So the challenge is to think about others before ourselves, humble ourselves, to be gentle. When someone, so to say, rubs you the wrong way, remember how many people afflicted our Lord and rubbed him the wrong way. Remember how the Lord remained meek and mild and still set out to recover Peter after he denied him three times, after he left him to be crucified alone. And yet the Lord had the heart to go recover him so that he could be used on the day of Pentecost. We do not know each other's future. We do not know what God is going to do with any of us. We don't know it. And since we don't know it, and he does, we also are challenged to never let go, to always pray, and to always pray that God will be glorified in each and every one of us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we give thanks to you for all that you've done, Lord. We pray that you'll help us here at the Witten Place Baptist Church to strive to be servants that will bring glory to your name, that will strive to serve each other, that will strive to help each other, and that will strive that we recognize in all that we do will bring glory to your name. May we cause the world to be curious about how we behave one toward another. Lord, I pray that you'll be with us in the Lord willing, the next several weeks as we begin to dive into this thought of what it means to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we were called. Lord, we give thanks to you. We magnify your name in Jesus' name. Amen.